Romans 14. Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him which heareth eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord, and he that regardeth not the day to the Lord, he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks, and he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live Therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord of both of the dead and the living. But why dost thou, thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou, thou send at naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. And every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Let us not therefore judge one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him that it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ... It is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify one another. For meat destroy not the work of God, and all things indeed are pure. But it is evil for that man who eateth which with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. Hast thou, hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that is condemneth not. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. And he that doubleth it is damned. Sorry, doubteth is damned if he eat. Because he eateth not of faith, for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Well, good morning. It's good to be here in the Lord's house this morning. It's good to have the word open before us. And this morning, as we begin, 
We're going to be looking specifically in our time at verses 14. Thank you, brother. Verses 14 through 19 in Romans 14. But before we actually get to 14, I believe it's helpful, most helpful, that we pick up in 13 where we left off as it ties into where we're going in 14 through 19. So if you would look with me, Romans 14, verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. And we talked last week about stop passing judgment on one another in the body that Paul's writing from the perspective that this was going on. And not only are we to stop doing this, he says, but rather judge or consider this. Not putting a stumbling block or a cause to fall in your brother's way. So what follows in verses 14 through 19 flows out of the statement in verse 13. Remember, as we're looking at the text, it's important that we understand and come to to see the text in light of surrounding context. So verse 13, very much connected to where we're going to be, 14 through 19. Look at verse 14. Paul says, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. You know, as I read that text, and maybe this is the same for you, I don't know. But as I read verse 14, it reminds me of the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 7. What are those words in Mark chapter 7? Well, if we look and turn for just a moment to Mark chapter 7, we read these words. Beginning in verse 18. His disciples are asking him concerning a parable that he's just spoken. And he says, are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And he said, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men... Proceed, listen to this list, evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed in that list mentioned right there in Mark 7, 21 and 22. But I asked this morning, as it relates to that list, and as it relates to Romans 14, 14, what about placing a stumbling block or a cause to fall in your brother's way? What is it that prompts you to do that toward your brother? 
does that desire not also come from within? And wouldn't it be true that this too is considered, as Jesus himself deemed that list as evil thing, an evil thing? Paul says, I know and am convinced. I know and am convinced. Some translations might have, I know and am persuaded. And you know, I was thinking about the biblical text in John's gospel that we shared. We were looking at a passage, I know back uh, Resurrection Sunday, a few months ago. And how, remember when Peter and John were racing to the tomb? And they get to the tomb... And John's telling the story, and he tells us that he got there first, right? And he got there, and and he saw. And the word there is that he observed. He saw with his eyes the empty tomb. Then Peter comes along, and he goes in, and he sees the linen cloths lying there. Different word in the original. He's beginning to ponder what he's seeing. And then we see finally that John goes in, and the text says he saw and believed There's even a greater understanding of seeing. The word oida, it's the same word here in the text. And what we're looking at in Romans. I know. I'm convinced. Same word. And I think we also look at in 2 Timothy, as Paul's writing in 2 Timothy 1. You might remember this passage. Paul says, nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. We sing about that, don't we? I know whom I have believed. And am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. You know, this even applies, this idea of knowing and being convinced. You might apply this to your home in terms of your teaching. When we, when we teach our children, maybe there's a resource that's out there. And you're looking at a resource. And parents, I, I, I would guarantee that, that you probably would want to make sure... You know and are convinced that that resource is going to be in accordance to the Word of God. Most of us do that. Most of us check it out before we just begin teaching it, teaching from it. We can also look at an example, you know, for those of you that are are maybe hiring in your company. I was reminded of this. You hire for your company. You want to know and you want to be convinced that this person is the right person for your company. You're not just going to hire someone who's walking in who happens to have a pulse. You want to know. You want to be convinced. You want to be persuaded. I know and am convinced. Let's ask a question. By whom? The text gives us the answer. By the Lord Jesus. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus. So, you know, whether or not Paul is actually thinking of Mark 70, it's possible... Uh, Acts, Acts 10 was another passage that, that came to mind, verse 15, where, where Jesus says, what, what God has cleansed, you must not call common or unclean. Remember that passage? Uh, when Peter's there and, and he, he receives the vision and he's been praying and, and he goes to the house of Cornelius and the door is open for the Gentiles to come in. Well, that's what that Acts 10, 15, what God has cleansed, you must not call common or unclean. We don't know with certainty how it is that Paul knew, how it is that Paul was convinced, but we do know that Paul knew and was convinced by the Lord Jesus. The text tells us so much. The source of the knowledge and the persuasion 
comes by way of our Lord. And you know, as I was considering this, I believe this stands in contrast to how some believers, how they know and, and they stand convinced. And I was thinking about the resource by which people know and are convinced. And, and some people, some believers, it's not by the Lord Jesus. But it could be perhaps by the latest wind of doctrine to pass by. You see, some know and maybe some are convinced by the trickery and deception of men, which Paul writes about in Colossians chapter 2, about beware. <laughs> Let no one deceive you with empty words and philosophies. But let's be sure we're about Christ. And you know, I got to thinking, what greater means of knowing and being convinced in one's mind than by way of the Lord Jesus, by way of his word? What greater way? You see, his character, his work, his death on the cross, as, as a believer, is it customary for you to say, I know and I am convinced by the Lord Jesus? Do we know and are we convinced by this sword that has been preserved for us? The sword that we are to take up and take into the battle. Called to open. Called to stand upon this word and upon his promises and obey the very words and commandments that have been set forth in this word. What is it, church, that Paul is so sure of? What is he convinced of by the Lord Jesus? The text answers that question. That there is nothing unclean of itself. Paul is, is advocating, I believe, the strong position. You know, we've been talking about in the beginning of Romans 14 into the part of 15 about the strong in the faith and the weak in the faith. I believe Paul is advocating this strong position in contrast to, to the weak in the faith, which is mentioned back in Romans 14.1. We see again in 15.1, he's saying, we then who are strong, going back to the strong in the faith, this, this contrast between the two, and understanding that there are two, and understanding these are realities within the body of Christ. And we've talked about, in context, knowing how to handle the differences among the two. How do we do that? You need to understand something, I believe, Paul says, if, if you're strong in the faith. Your knowledge and persuasion by the Lord Jesus is not licensed to handle your weak brother in a judgmental way. We read that in Romans 14, 13. In fact, look at how Romans 14, 14 ends. Look at how it ends. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So we have, I know and am convinced, but I know and am convinced, but. You see, we have this, this contrast word here, it's inserted. It gives you a clue that your own persuasion in the Lord is not sufficient to pass judgment upon your brother. Nor does it give you a ticket to place a stumbling block or cause to fall in your brother's way. The contrast word ought to call your attention to the importance of your weaker brother in the faith. You might very well be convinced of a particular matter. 
the text places. One who knows and is convinced nothing is unclean, right alongside the one who considers anything to be unclean. Both of them are placed right before us in Romans 14, 14. Now, observations that we can glean in light of that right at the beginning here. We need to understand there are two positions, if you will, mentioned in the text. Two realities exist within Christ's church. Remember, we're talking context here about one another, about Christ's church. There are the strong in the faith, and there are weak, those who are weak in the faith. And the question before you as a part of the body is, how are you going to deal with that brother who is weak in the faith? And maybe you sit here today and consider yourself one of those who are weak in the faith. And so the question may be from the other end of it, how then will you deal with the brother who is strong in the faith? I believe another observation in light of this text in verse 14 is for us to understand that as a believer in Christ, you are not on an island. You are not operating on your own accord. See, the church is made up of parts, and these parts are brought together through Jesus Christ. That's the common denominator, the common bond. And yet these, these parts are different, aren't they? And they're intended to function uniquely through the various giftings of the Holy Spirit. It's been given. A third observation, I believe, is, is, is that we know that the strong in the faith must consider the weak and not trample over them as though they didn't exist or were insignificant to the life of the body. Two positions here talked about. I believe here, also from an observation standpoint, the emphasis here seems to be upon how the strong in the faith responds to the weak, to those who consider anything unclean. Paul seems to be advocating the strong in the faith as the desirable position. And yet the strong in the faith are challenged with how to love and operate in the midst of brothers who are weak in the faith. You know, just from a very practical standpoint, I'm thinking about this. In your homes, I know in our home this is true, we have some older siblings, older children, and we also have some younger ones. And there are times when I have conversation, especially with some of the older ones, and, and remind them that they know the right thing to do. That they ought not to get caught up in, in an argument with a younger sibling. But they ought to handle it a little bit differently. The younger one may not know, may not be in the know as much as the older one. And how to actually interact. How do we deal with this? How do we manage this conflict over this toy? You see, those who are stronger, we ought to come alongside and be most helpful. And I see that practical outworking. It's a practical outworking just in the home. I see that. If you look on at verse 15 says, yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. 
Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Now, already up to this point, Paul's talked about and mentioned things that no doubt were very important, significant. Uh, eating, drinking, uh, upholding one day over another, right? But ask the question here, what's at stake? What's at stake when you get to verse 15? We've seen the two positions. He's laid those out. Those who consider all things clean and those who hold anything can be unclean. And now he gets to verse 15, and we need to ask the question, what's at stake? And I believe according to the text, what's at stake is walking in love toward your brother. Walking in love toward your brother, which we're called to do, being in Christ. Notice what the text says. If your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer, you are no longer walking in love. So, see, when you fail to consider your brother or operate on your own terms apart from being mindful of your weaker brother, you are no longer walking in love. And the text speaks of food and drink. And I'm sure some of you are sitting here and, and you're waiting to get out of the section that talks, what's, what's food? There's a lot of food and drink discussion. And maybe we're having a hard time, perhaps, identifying with the very real idea that was presented back here in the first century. This was a real issue. This was a real struggle, a real concern for those brothers in the church. I do believe there are other examples that we could insert for today. Maybe they would be helpful in helping us understand this idea. This is not an exhaustive list. It is a list, a couple things. One thing that came to mind is this, this idea of our favorite things. Our favorite things. You might remember the song. Maybe it reminds you of that song. My favorite things. I simply remember my favorite things. And then I don't feel so bad. You see, each one of you here, I believe, have your own unwritten set of favorite things. You have your favorite doctrines, perhaps, your favorite music, your favorite practices. Maybe you have your favorite person to sit down across the lunch table with. And the question here, church, do you allow those favorite things to override your call to walk in love toward one another? Closely connected to this idea of favorite things is this holding up the banner. And, and, and church, you need to understand something. Some of these things that I'm mentioning, I believe, are very good things. But sometimes when we take in an excess of a good thing, it can become an extreme. It can become, if we're not careful, 
an idol. Even the good things can become idols. In upholding an idol then, we're embracing this idol to the point that we're holding to this thing at the expense of loving a brother. So what do I mean about holding up a banner? Well, maybe you've raised a banner. An imaginary banner, of course. But it gets raised, oftentimes, in the church. You know know what it looks like. The banner of the inner circle. Whereby, as we talked about last week, you you stand ready with the gavel in hand to judge your, your brother who might not be in that circle that you reside in. The circles can vary. And perhaps it would be a great exercise for you to just take that upon yourself, between you and the Lord, maybe you and your family, to identify some of the circles. It could be the home education circle. It could be the circle that identifies those who have a certain number of children. Could be those in the conference attending circle, whereby one stands in or out based upon his willingness to attend any and every conference that blows in. You attend and you're in, refrain and you're left outside. Or here's one, and again, I mentioned this, and I want to be very clear. I believe there's much good this ministry is doing. Much, much good. But have we created a vision forum circle? You purchase and you adhere to all the things subscribed by a particular company or organization or ministry. And any who don't, well, they're they're shunned, perhaps, or, or set aside because they aren't conforming to the circle that you're in. Church, the list could go on. Walking in love toward your brother. That's what's at stake here. The text goes on and says, Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. And right here, herein lies the central purpose for welcoming your brother in and not pushing him aside. Here it is. Christ died for him too. Look to the cross, church. And you'll be reminded of how much Christ loved you while you were yet a sinner. And, even more, in light of the context, you'll be reminded that he also loved that brother of yours 
Even if he doesn't share one of your favorite things. Even if he doesn't line up in that circle that you're in. Because you see, at the cross, the ground becomes level, doesn't it? The only one who was elevated that day was Christ on the cross. All the more reason not to allow my food or any other difference to keep me from walking in love toward my brother. See that brother as one for whom Christ died. And it might just change the way that you operate around him. Be sensitive, church, to how the Holy Spirit would lead you in this. Look at Romans 14, 16. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. Maybe you were like me this week and you were wrestling with, what is this good? Well, if that was you and you were wrestling with that, trying to figure that out, trying to understand what Paul's speaking of, congratulations. So have many godly folks through the centuries been trying to figure this one out, exactly what this is talking about. There are some who would believe the good here refers to the gospel. Perhaps it does. Paul speaks quite often of the gospel. In context, though, I believe the good spoken of here. One writer, I believe, says this well. The good here refers to Christian liberty, the freedom of conscience which has been won by Christ. Let's get that. The freedom of conscience, which has been won by Christ. And he goes on. But which will inevitably get a bad name if it is exercised in an inconsiderate, loveless fashion. And so herein lies one of the great challenges for those who know and are convinced by the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean of itself. You see, do not allow the freedom you have in Christ to be spoken of as evil. I was reminded of the passage, Corinthians 10, 23 and 24. Paul's writing here, the church at Corinth. And he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. You know, two questions come out of that passage. First of all, am I being helpful to my brother? And secondly, am I, through my actions with others, edifying my brother for whom Christ died? Paul goes on in verse 17 to give further understanding on why it is you are to steward the Christian liberty and freedom of conscience that you've been given. He says, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I 
out of the verses in this text for this week, this is the one. For me personally. I've enjoyed looking at the most this week. This has been very helpful to see. Because you see, verse 17, church, takes our eyes off of the temporal. I believe verse 17 gives us very much an eternal perspective. Steward well how you interact with your brother in the faith. And understand that as you relate to one another in the body of Christ, you are operating under a much larger umbrella. (laughs) The kingdom of God. Paul tells the reader two things here about the kingdom of God. First of all, he says what it is not. It is not eating and drinking. Now that's been the topic of discussion here for quite a while. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. Okay, Paul, what is it then? It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. You know, I was thinking about the kingdom of God and was reminded of the passage in Luke 17, 20 and 21, when Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. He answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. Nor will they say, see here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. It's in your midst. Or or I love the way that Mark begins his gospel in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying... The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God, in its simplest form, in terms of defining, one writer says the realm in which God rules. The realm in which God rules. I know that's pretty broad, but it is helpful nonetheless. You know, as a, as a believer in Christ, do you live as though God really isn't at work? Do you live with much thought of God Monday through Saturday? You're here today, and I'm assuming by the fact you're here today, you're thinking of God. I hope. I hope. But Monday through Saturday in particular, I wonder... Do we think much of Him? Do you acknowledge His Lordship? Do you acknowledge His sovereignty in your life? Because you see, if so, I believe it will be of great benefit as you interact with others in the body. So we have eating and drinking representative of things that you do, these actions that you take. And then we see righteousness, peace, and joy. And I believe these things are representative of things given to you by God. In the realm where God rules, the things of greatest importance are the things of God, church. Yes, it is true. He provides the food and the drink. 
and all the other needs, necessities. He knows that we need. But those things pale in comparison with kingdom matters. Kingdom matters described here. You see, the kingdom of God is righteousness. And as you sit here today, if you were in Christ Jesus, you have been clothed with the perfect righteousness of Jesus. God has given you new clothes to wear. Praise God. He's removed your filthy garments. He's graciously provided for you new attire. Compliments of the blood of Jesus. But the kingdom of God is also peace. And how can we forget as we think about peace? Where we've been in Romans, in Romans 5, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, peace with God is what allows you to live at peace with one another in the body and with one another in the world at large. Peace with God. And then we read that passage in Philippians 4, 7. It says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The peace of God allows you to walk through life's circumstances with certainty that God is with you. There's a knowledge of God walking with you, guarding you, as you move through that valley, perhaps. And then I was reminded of that verse in, in in John 14, 27, where Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, and he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. You see, the peace that Christ gives, the peace that Christ offers, is a different kind of peace, unlike the world. Now let me ask you a question. Because that is so, ought not the peace that is within you, through Christ be manifested and look differently than to the world? If the peace that Christ gives to you and to me in Christ is different than the world, ought that not come through in the way then that we live our lives? The kingdom of God also is joy. And not only is this like peace, a, a fruit of the Holy Spirit operating in you, but it is characteristic of the one following Christ. And, and this joy is not to be confused with happiness. See, circumstances oftentimes, it seems, swing the, the pendulum of, of happiness. But being clothed with the righteousness of Christ and given the Holy Spirit, this, this, this church is sufficient for the joy to ignite. Had a water heater issue. Found out it was... Uh, a term, I didn't have any idea what the term was. Thermal coupler, I probably butchered it, but something along that line. Something that was, my, my pilot light wasn't 
being, staying, staying lit. So I was having a problem with the water heater. I got to thinking about that. Trying to apply that. And, you know, oftentimes during the week, I'm, as I'm going through life, trying to, trying to figure out and ask of the Lord, Lord, what would you have for me to learn through these things? Sometimes through difficult circumstances, through trials in our lives, the Lord shows us things and helps us apply some things to his word. You know, I got to thinking about the, the pilot light, how, how that, that light of Christ in me, and how that pilot light, that, that, ought, that ought to burn brightly in my life. It ought to burn brightly in your life. It ought not be going out. You see, because you and I, we're here for but a time, and the way that you interact with other believers needs to represent the pilot light that's lit within you. The joy of Christ reflects your permanent address as a believer in Jesus. It exudes hope. Remember we talked about this already, this rejoicing in hope. It exudes hope regardless of circumstances and stands in contrast to the world's manner of operating. And there are a few people, as I was reminded of joy, there are a few people in this body who reflect the very joy that I'm speaking of. You might know some of them too. And I don't know what it is. Well, yeah, I do. It's Christ in them. But you and I like to spend time with those people. You might know some people that are filled with joy. That what Christ has done in them gets manifested outwardly. And when you're around that person, you don't want to leave. Because you like being with them. For the simple fact that Christ is shining out of them. You know anybody like that? I guarantee you we can come up with people that are just the opposite of what I've just described. Huh? Why is it, church? Why is it that there seem to be so many more examples of people who seemingly have lost the light within them? And when we're talking about the body of Christ, whether we're talking strong or weak, doesn't matter here for a moment. Let's just look at this. The kingdom of, right, kingdom of God is joy. Christ in you. Christ in you. So, so when we look at this idea of the heart, this joy that we're speaking of is not something you and I manufacture. It's, it's Christ in you, released for all to see. It's reflective of the heart and yet manifested on your face. You know, there's not a whole lot of distance, is there? Your heart and your mouth, face. But we seem to have a real hard time getting the joy up here. What would happen? And I'm not talking about putting a facade 
That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about allowing the joy of Christ to be manifested in your life. You see, that's not only attractive to other brothers and sisters in the body. That's attractive to the world. That's convincing to the world. That causes the world to sit up and scratch a head and wonder, what are those people doing? What do they have? I don't know what it is, but I want that. Oh, what we're talking about here is much, goes much more beyond the scope of the body of Christ. Hope in Christ's church. When we go out the doors, this is something that is intended to impact the world we live in. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. And you know, it's as though Paul here is taking you to one of those higher planes for a, for a beautiful view. I enjoyed looking at this. You know, vacations, for many of us, afford opportunities to observe God's handiwork and creation. Maybe some of you have gone to places where you've just been able to observe and see the beauty of God in creation. pull over and you see what God is doing. And it's as though the Lord is saying here in the text, you know, you've been eating and drinking and wrestling with matters I never intended for you to wrestle with. Let me take you over here for just a moment and remind you of my kingdom. Let me show you the riches and the beauty that are yours in Christ. Let me refresh you in eternal matters pertaining to the kingdom where I rule. I don't know about you, but I do find it helpful at times to get a bird's eye view of the situation. And as a believer in the body of Christ, maybe today you need to stop for a moment and see see what God is doing, see how God is working, and what He would have you to be about doing. Perhaps He's calling you to a bird's eye view to see what matters most to Him. Maybe we've been about and wrapped up and wrestling with things that matter most to me. And we've missed what God may be wanting to do. We've missed perhaps what God may be wanting us to see. Perhaps there's more of Him needed in your interaction with others and less of yourself. Look at Romans 14, 18. Hang in there, we're about done. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Now, there, again, here's another question here in the text as to whether the best rendering is in these things. For he who serves Christ in these things. There's also a possible rendering for he who serves Christ in this thing. One of them is singular. One of them is plural. I bring that out because it is an important aspect of the text. To leave it out, to not speak of it, um, I, I believe would be wrong. I at least want to put it forward. Now... As we're looking at these things, if it is best translated these things, it seems best at that point to point backward to Romans 14, 17. These things being to the righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. If it is intended to be singular, this thing, the text may then be pointing back toward the Christian liberty and freedom of conscience. The one who serves Christ by faithfully operating his Christian liberty among other brothers. 
The text says, for he who serves Christ in these things. So regardless, regardless of how one might render the verse, whether we're looking at singular, whether we're looking at plural, I believe the point in the verse is still very clearly seen. The one who serves, the one who serves. The word there comes from our root word, doulos, slave, bond servant. The one who serves, that idea, that whole idea speaks to your new relationship now in Christ, your new ownership. And already back in Romans 11, we go back to Romans, excuse me, Romans 12, verse 11, we saw in that list of things that we're to do amongst one another, serving the Lord, the word serving comes from that same word, doulos, serving the Lord. We see also in Romans 13, verse 14, We're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. That's the old attire, church. But I want you to notice also in Romans 14, 18, notice the order of what's set forth. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Acceptable to God. So you see, church, my first priority, your first priority in Christ ought to be to be pleasing to God. My allegiance is to my Lord. Secondly, comes approved by men. One writer says, notice that if we do please men, we will not please them by setting out to please them, but rather by setting out to serve Christ. That is, we must put things in the right order and get our priorities straight. God cannot be put in second place. I was reminded of that this past week. I was at a camp. The gentleman that was leading the camp, right at the beginning of the camp, I just praise the Lord for this. He had a big dry erase board and he drew all these things up on the board. And he said, he said, guys, I want you to understand something. I report to these 14 people. I have responsibility to report to these 14 people. These are my earthly bosses. And he had a box at the top. It was blank. And after he got done describing all these people he was accountable to, reporting to, and what have you, he then drew God up in the box. And he exhorted the men that were there. You've got to get your priorities straight. It's got to be the Lord. Many of you are married. You've got to have a relationship with your wife. You have children, your family. Many of you are, are working. You have a work relationship. And then, refereeing. You see, refereeing must not be, cannot be the priority. Oh, I so appreciated hearing that. That was a breath of fresh air. And I told him so when we were done. Thank you for sharing that. Getting our priorities right. You know, I think sometimes when we look at that list, being acceptable to God and approved by men, sometimes we get that out of order, don't we? Any of you ever ever reverse that order and been about, I want to be approved by man? I believe Paul gives us the right order. Let's seek to be acceptable to God. And in doing so, we'll be approved by men. Look at the last verse. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which 
one may edify another. One writer said, it is the Christian's duty to think of everything, not as it affects ourselves only, but also as it affects others. Let us pursue. Therefore, let us pursue. Let us run swiftly after. That's the idea behind the word. Therefore, let us run swiftly after what? Two things. Here's the takeaway. Here are the action steps right here. Verse 19. What are we to do with all of this? Therefore, let us pursue, first of all, the things which make for peace. He's already talked about peace. Kingdom of God is peace. Let's pursue the things which make for peace. Is there a way you can resolve a situation with another brother? Let's look for a way to resolve that in a peaceful way. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably. Right? We've been there, haven't we? What's the second thing we're to pursue? What's the second thing the text says we're to run after? The things by which one may edify or build up another. And I think sometimes, church, we don't pursue those two things. And one of the reasons I believe we don't pursue and run swiftly after those two things in the text is because we're too busy pursuing our own agendas. We're too busy and too absorbed in what's going on in my life. And I believe that's one of the great takeaways from the text. It's like the Lord wants to take us to maybe a higher plane, that bird's eye view, to be, help us be able to see as it relates to dealing with brothers and sisters, to be able to welcome in that brother, to welcome in that sister. Why? First of all, because Christ died for that brother as well. But also helping us understand and realize that the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. The kingdom of God, the much bigger picture, the bigger umbrella under which we live and operate in this temporary time, the kingdom of God. So are we wrestling with eating and drinking issues? All the while, the Lord has called us to be about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, operating in the power of the Holy Spirit, walking in the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, go back and read it. church I believe the message is clear I'm not saying it's easy but I do believe it's clear let's walk in this way let's pursue these things and let's do it together it's wonderful when one or two or three or four of us do it think about it when all of us are being mindful of it and all of us are running swiftly all of us are pursuing those things which make for peace all of us are pursuing those things by which one might edify and build up another. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. I pray, Father, that you would move us, Lord, to do the very things your text has called us to do. May we think less of ourselves, Lord. May we think more of you. May we be about pursuing these very things you've called us to pursue in the short period of time that we're here. I pray that we would carry these out 
in the power of the Holy Spirit and not endeavor to carry them out in the flesh. That we might remember, Lord, our new ownership. That we might remember that we've been clothed with the blood of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that we would operate in like manner, that we would operate as a Christian, as a believer in Jesus. Oh, Father, not only so that the body might be able to work and function as you've called it to function, but also that the world might know Christ. Father, there's a twofold objective and a twofold goal. I pray your church would give you glory. Pray that we would be great ambassadors for you in this time that we have here. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.